Hi, this is Elizabeth Bailey, and you're listening to the Citizens Podcast from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. This is Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt was the 26th president of the United States. He was an imperfect man, but he's consistently rated as a top five American president in history. And even him winning, having two terms, he even was shot during a speech and just kept speaking. He says it's going to take more than that to kill a bull moose, referring to himself. After the speech, he got down and said, someone bring me this man, brought him down. Instead of hitting him or fighting him, he sat down and wanted to talk with him to discuss why shooting him was not a great idea to get his point across. He was an interesting man to say the least, but I think he's right on here. He says comparison is the thief of joy. There is nothing that will ruin your joy and thankfulness with God more than comparison. Because what comparison is, is coveting. You know that in the Ten Commandments, that one we kind of skip over near the end, it's like we covet our neighbor's stuff. Comparison comes from coveting. And from coveting comes comparison. From comparison comes discontentment, comes jealousy, comes ingratitude. And comes a host of other fruits that boil up and steal all the joy out of our life. And Peter becomes a living example of this to us today. Jesus has just sat down with Peter, restored him after Peter had failed him. After Peter had denied him three times, Jesus graciously restored Peter three times, affirming that I love you, Peter. You can still pastor and lead my church. That's going to work out And Peter, instead of embracing this great comfort of God, this great forgiveness of God, this great grace of God, Peter chooses another way. Look what it says with me in verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. That's the author, John. And when Peter saw him, he just couldn't help himself. He said to Jesus, what about that man? What about him? And Peter's question launches him on an adventure of missing the point. Jesus has arrived to restore him, to comfort him, to care for him. Yet yet Peter is worried about who's following him. Peter is worried about what's going to happen to John. Because Jesus had just told Peter that you're going to follow me, that you're going to be a pastor of my church, but you're also going to be crucified one day. That one day, Peter, you're going to die on a cross. And instead of receiving that prediction from Jesus, that prophecy, that truth from Jesus as comfort that God would be with him through that cross, that God would not count that as failure to die that way, but say that's what obedience is for you, Peter. Not to, to miss the comfort of God, he turns and looks at John and compares himself and launches in a comparison of like, what about him, Jesus? what about this guy? Is he going to get off easy? Is is he going to have to suffer like me? Jesus, the caring, also confronts us because he loves us. Look at verse 22. Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Hey, Peter, get your eyes off John. Get your eyes off anybody else's life. 
We just had this moment of great reconciliation where you're going to follow me with your whole heart, even with this hard thing that's coming one day. And you're already comparing yourself to John. You've already taken your eyes off me. Simply when we begin to compare our life, compare our story, compare our body, compare our, the race set before us to others, we always lose. We never win when we compare ourselves to other. And furthermore, we lose God's comfort, his peace and joy in our life. Something promised throughout the book of John, because as soon as we start comparing ourselves to other, we have chosen against the comfort that God gives us. Jesus knows life is hard. Jesus knows the world is difficult, but Jesus gives comfort by his spirit specifically of peace and joy for this hard life, that we would stay focused on Jesus, that we would follow after him and not drop our head down and start looking to the left and to the right. When we play the comparison game, we spurn Jesus's command to follow me in order to follow someone else. When you start comparing, you start following other people and their story, wondering how you stack up. And we look instead of a comfort for God in this hard world, we start to find a comfort, a perverse comfort in the comparison game. And it can go one of two ways. You compare yourself, let's say, to a friend. And you do it to pump yourself up because you think you're better off or maybe better than them. And there's a perverse comfort there of being judgmental and self-righteous but it leads to no fruit in your life. Eventually, it'll only make you loveless towards them and make you a smaller person overall. Or it can go the other way. We compare ourselves to others and we end up saying, oh my gosh, they're so much better than me or, or their lot in life is so much better than mine or, or their attributes are so much greater. And so we decide to wallow in self-pity. And there's a perversity to that too. It's coveting, it's jealousy, it's a discontentment. Well, neither are real comforts in their life. Instead, they're both ways to sin and a ways to miss out on a God who seeks to comfort you just as you are because he loves you and restores you on a beach just like Peter. Not so you get it right this time, but that you could follow him and stop looking around. And it would be easy for me to just say, stop it, guys. Just everybody stop it. Just stop comparing. But the thing is, comparison is a part of our culture. It happens all the time. We love lists. We love ranking. We can't even help ourselves. I listen to podcasts that are like reactions to TV shows and they're already ranking it against all other TV shows in like a day. We are obsessed with it. So I want to give us a way out of the comparison game to help us notice what the culture, the sickness of comparison culture, how deep it is. And then to see the way to God's comfort. Look at this chart with me. One side is what the sickness of comparison culture looks like, and the other is embracing Jesus' comfort. When you're sick with comparison culture, you look horizontal, and you keep yourself as the judge of all of life. When you embrace Jesus' comfort, you look vertical, and you trust Jesus as the one who defines what a good life is. When you're sick with comparison culture, you desire to achieve and win to be loved. You have to step on someone to get a leg up to go somewhere or you're a nobody, right? But when you embrace Jesus's comfort, you know Jesus won for me and I obey because I'm loved. I don't obey to get love. I obey because I'm loved. 
What a wild difference between two ways of being. Sick with comparison, culture seeks to rank everything, but embracing Jesus' comfort knows the things that matter most can't be measured. When you get to the end of your life, you're not going to worry about how big your house was in comparison to all your friends when you were in your 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. You're not going to care about the cars you owned. You're not going to care if you got the newest iPhone or not. You're not going to rank yourself on how attractive you were at 35 or 25 or any other time. You're going to worry, do I still have a relationship with my kids, my friends? How did I leave things with my mom and dad? Did I leave a legacy at work that was willing to follow? Have I entrusted my money to faithful things that will multiply past the grave? All the things that matter most in your life can't be measured. Comparison culture gets you nowhere. When you're sick with comparison culture, you tend to see my worst compared to everyone else's best. Statistically, for people who are trying to get in shape, trying to lose weight, trying to be a little more fit, they begin by comparing themselves to people that inspire them. They're a little more fit than them. Other friends' journeys, maybe their parents, maybe a brother or sister. But as they grow in fitness, they actually keep leveling up until they start comparing themselves to like Olympic-style model athletes to where it never, ever, ever, ever ends because they can only see their worst in the mirror and they always see other people's best, not considering that, hey, they're pro athletes. That's what they do. You shouldn't look like them. Why? Because that's what they do. But we do that with everything. Beauty, dating, jobs, titles. Jesus and his comfort, he knows your worst and he loves you anyway. Can you imagine a God that actually knows your worst thoughts and deeds of your life? and chose to die for you anyways, forgave them, even if you haven't talked about it with him before. I believe you should, because I think you'll find healing, love, and forgiveness, and redemption. But what if you walked around knowing that God already knows the worst things about me, and I don't have to compare myself to anyone ever again? Comparison culture never brings joy because the comparison never ends. It's like being on a treadmill that all you do is hit faster over time and faster and faster until you get exhausted and give up. Burnout doesn't just happen. Burnout is clicking the button over and over and over again because we're addicts to comparison with others. Jesus promises peace and joy as a part of his comfort. To anyone, to follow anyone is to constantly compare. To follow Jesus is to be at home with both God and yourself. See, that's the good news of the gospel, that you get welcomed into God's house where you can sit there and be your absolute self before God. And he loves you and doesn't ask you to be anyone else except to follow him. Will you change in following Jesus? Absolutely might change whole parts of you, might change your personality, might change, definitely change your view of life, but should change you from the inside out. But he's not going to say you need to be like your brother or your sister or some other person. The best you is you following Jesus. You are the only person who can be you, Clay Ebersold, following Jesus. Kelsey Taylor, following Jesus. Virginia can't be Kelsey following Jesus but Virginia can be Virginia following Jesus. And that brings the most glory 
to God. So I want to invite you today, church, all of us, to pull that stop button on the, the bus line. I've never been on a bus where you got to yank the line. I don't even know if it works like that. That feels dangerous that that would stop the bus. Maybe it's a warning telling the driver to stop. But I want to invite you off that train or that bus today. I want you to get off the treadmill. I want you to imagine that you are a great oxen. I've been watching this Nat Geo wolves documentary with my kids. They love a wolf pack. They love just getting after it and howling at the TV. And the wolves are always trying to get the oxen and the oxen are very big. And I want you to imagine yourself as an oxen with a huge yoke across your back, like a big wooden thing across your back, like a saddle that people's packs or grain or different weights or all the these beasts of burden, all these things can be put on your back. And every day you live in the comparison game. I want you to feel like that's another day that you put thousands of pounds of mostly self-inflicted suffering and anguish on yourself and then go try to live your life. Because here's the tricky part about comparison. It was Peter's choice. A sinful choice, but no one makes you compare. Ads may entice you. Media may suggest. Our culture may make it like the water we swim in, but it's still our choice if we're going to feel the burden of trying to compare ourselves to others or put others down by thinking we're better than others. And you're still the oxen that has whatever many miles that day to go. Do you want thousands of pounds of wishing you were skinnier or richer or smarter or prettier or more popular crushing you all day, or you can drop the yoke of comparison and embrace Jesus's great yoke of comfort. Look at Matthew 11 with me. Come to me. This is Jesus. All you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How's that Jesus sound church? You want to slide that yoke of comparison off today and start learning to walk a new way? Life is hard enough as it is without comparing yourselves to others and putting others down. Peter needs to follow Jesus as Jesus says, you follow me. It's the only thing Jesus says back to the man. I guess he says more, but I'm passionate about citizens belonging to Jesus. And as long as we spend our time looking to the left and right, we will always belong to this world. But if we look up at Jesus, We're free, free to belong to Jesus and not to the shackle of comparison. Now, just like Peter and John, we must choose to follow Jesus. So pay attention with me on how John finishes this huge 21 chapter gospel, because he's going to wrap it up with two things. He has a choice to make here in these three verses of how's he going to wrap this big story up. So look with me at 22 and 23. Jesus said to him, said to Peter, if it is my will that he, John, remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, 
But if it is my will, he remain until I come. What is that to you? Now, this part sounds so strange. You're like, what are they talking about? But this shows the beauty of scripture that before this story was written down by John, this conversation with Jesus was apparently very widely known, so widely known that people had started the rumor of like, did you hear what Jesus said about John to Peter? That what if he remains until Jesus comes back? Meaning maybe John's like a doomsday clock that when John dies or gets near dying, Jesus is coming back. So imagine the wild speculation and pressure to be John, like like in the church, when some people think you're a doomsday clock slash a Christian victory clock that, well, Jesus is going to come back before he, before he dies and he's getting older. So John takes a moment while he writes down the gospel of John to just clarify and say, hey guys, um, Jesus did not say that. It's important to look at exactly what Jesus said and what Jesus exactly said. What if it is my will that he remain until I return? What is that to you, Peter? So first John clarifies his own position in all this and says, let's listen to what Jesus actually says and not wildly speculate. But then he ends his gospel a second way. First, I'm not a doomsday clock, so don't look at my aging. Second is this, verse 24 and 25. This is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things, who has written these things, and we know his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John says, this is my story. The we he refers to is we as in all the disciples, all those who met Jesus, all of us who've been following now in the church as he writes this a few decades later. And he says, I didn't add anything. In fact, I had to leave a bunch out because Jesus lived for 33 years and he was amazing for all of them. I would have to write a hundred books to document every day of what it's like to live with the God man, Jesus. But we can be certain with John as he tells us to believe and tells us to believe in Jesus that by the Holy Spirit, that John wrote down what we need to know about Jesus, to have an effective faith in life following this Jesus, that we are called to follow him. And so as a fitting end to this gospel, I want us to look at kind of the four sections we broke the gospel down and look at the 21 chapters as a little summary statement. And instead of trying to write these down, they're they're in front of you, they're spread around. We'll have some more in the back. I'll send them on the newsletter. But even if you want to close your eyes or keep them open, I just want the truth and grace of this whole gospel to wash over you. It's a cool thing to get to do a whole book of the Bible together that's significant like John. And I broke it into four sections. That Jesus is God. He's God himself. Jesus is near. He was a man who was near us. Jesus was killed. And Jesus is alive. He came back from the dead. In John 1, we see Jesus is God who became the Lamb of God for us. In John 2, Jesus is God, so we can be made new. John 3, Jesus is God, the only salvation for us. In John 4, Jesus is God, so we can worship him 
with our whole heart. John 5, Jesus is God, so we may sin no more. Remember him looking at that man at the pool. He heals him and tells him, now go and sin no more so nothing worse will happen to you. He even calls this man who'd been sick for dozens of years saying, hey, you sinned, something happened to cause this sickness. Maybe he was stealing a loaf of bread and jumped a wall and it didn't go well and broke his legs and wasn't fixed. But Jesus could both heal him and tell him the truth. Don't go back to that life. Live a new life following me. John 6, Jesus is God. So the bread and wine of his body and blood are for us. John 7, Jesus is God. So the only one who can quench the thirst of our soul. In John 8, Jesus is God. He's the light for our darkness. In John 9, he makes the spiritually blind see. In John 10, he's the God who shepherds our soul. In John 11, it turns that Jesus is near. He was a true man, a man who could weep with us on the darkest days of our life as he wept being with Mary and Martha over their brother, brother Lazarus, who, de- who was dead. Even though Jesus was about to raise him to life, he sits and weeps with his people. John 12, Jesus came to save the world explicitly. John 13, he came to love us till the end of the line. John 14, Jesus is near. He is the way, the truth, and the life. John 15, he is the vine and we are the branches. John 16, he promises joy to us. John 17, Jesus is near. His love for us is both new and forevermore. John 18, it changes that Jesus is killed and he drank the wrath of God for us. And John 19, Jesus has killed the king who dies for his people. What king do you know that dies for his people? Not a lot in human history other than Jesus. Maybe in the movies, but they're just copying our king. John 20, Jesus is alive, so God's peace is with you. John 21, Jesus is alive, so follow me. Where else would we go? Because here's the truth, church. Jesus isn't like the movie Elf with Will Ferrell that we need to like really believe in Santa to make Santa real, or we need to like really believe in Jesus and that'll make him more real. It's not like that at all. We come to know the truth of Jesus and it is the truth of Jesus that changes us. Our belief doesn't power Jesus, rather coming to know Jesus changes us. And when we see Jesus as God, Jesus is near us as a man. Jesus was alive, then dead and back to life. It leads us to the same question that Simon Peter had in John 6. That if all this is true about Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know you are the Holy One of God. Even if Jesus' teachings seem strange, even if they seem difficult, even if they're hard to understand, even if they cut across what we think we believe, There's a moment that if he's God and he is the only savior for sin and the Lord of the universe, where else are we going to go? So when we hit problems with our belief, our problems of scripture, our problems of Jesus, we turn to Jesus to figure them out. We don't turn to ourselves. And so application is pretty simple today, church. If you don't believe, if you're someone who doesn't follow Jesus with your life, I urgently encourage you to repent and believe in Jesus and begin to follow him with your whole heart because I don't think there's anywhere else to go. 
And I think this is a Jesus who died and came back to life, that he can give salvation to absolutely everyone. If you are a believer, I have two applications for us. First is that we would take Jesus on his own terms, that you would look at that sheet of 21 chapters breakdown and take it this week and meditate and pray on it. Look at the verses to look it up on the right side. And you would say, I want to take Jesus as Jesus says he is, not as I wish him to be or my culture wants him to be. But I could say, I want to worship Jesus on your terms because you're God and I'm not. I'm a follower of Jesus and I want to follow an actual Jesus, not a Jesus of my imagination. And that's hard work, church. Even if you believe in Jesus, to keep fighting and saying, I'm not making Jesus into my image in the mirror, but I'm being made into Jesus's image when I look in the mirror. And the second application is this. Will you end the comparison game and instead run your own race, as the Apostle Paul says in so many different ways? Will you be okay to start just running your race following Jesus and not comparing yourself to a hundred different people and things and to let the weight slide off your shoulders and embrace the deep freedom you have in Jesus, embrace his comfort and joy, never letting worldly comparison steal it. Church, if comparison is the thief of joy, then thankfulness is the seed of joy. When I meet people who are full of joy, it doesn't take very long to see that thankfulness is in their other hand. Test it. See if it's true. But from thankfulness comes gladness. From experience of God comes gladness. You meet a thankful person, you're going to meet someone full of joy, even on their dark days, even in the hard things. And I want to be a church and a people that plants the seeds of thankfulness everywhere that we have a crop of joy all the time. You've been listening to the Citizens Church Podcast. Special thanks to Murphy DX, who recorded our theme music. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama, you can visit us on our website at citizensbhm.com or on the usual suspects, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.